Knowledge Products presents the world's political hotspots on India and Pakistan. For more than half a century, the governments of India and Pakistan have faced each other with suspicion. Each has built large armies equipped with sophisticated U.S. and Soviet weapons. There is the usual array of tanks and artillery, plus nuclear capabilities for both nations. India already has announced that it has atom bombs. Pakistan claims it does not, but the denial seems based on a technicality. They have the components for several atomic bombs, but they have not yet assembled them. If another Indo-Pakistani war breaks out, a hostile use of nuclear weapons, perhaps the first since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, may occur. In 1988, a former officer in India's Ministry of Defense described his country's nuclear potential. India is now self-sufficient in regard to its nuclear fuel cycle. From mining uranium to recovery of plutonium from spent fuel. It has spent fuel not subject to international controls and hence the capacity to divert plutonium for bomb making. The Madras reactor alone can be the source for 10 to 20 Hiroshima-sized bombs a year. As for Pakistan, U.S. Senator Alan Cranston described the situation in 1984. Following designs stolen in Holland, the Pakistanis built a large centrifuge enrichment plant at Kahuta, near Islamabad, Pakistan's capital. By 1983, they could produce at least 15 kilograms of weapons-grade, highly enriched uranium a year. The Kahuta plant has a current capacity of 45 kilograms of enriched uranium, of which 16 kilograms is deemed more than sufficient for fabricating one nuclear warhead. Indians and Pakistanis inevitably seem to irritate one another. Pakistanis can never forget India's size. Though Pakistan's population is more than 100 million, India's numbers are climbing toward a billion. Pakistanis will often say one Muslim soldier is worth 10 Hindus. Even so, India has defeated Pakistan in three wars, which hurts Pakistan's pride and makes the nuclear option more attractive. For Indians, Pakistan's mostly Muslim population represents a constant source of danger. Although more than 105 million Indians also are Muslim, and even though many Muslims serve in India's armed forces, somehow Indians believe that Pakistani Muslims are more violent and unpredictable. A young college-educated Indian recently voiced an opinion which many of his countrymen seem to share. We should destroy Pakistan now, he said. They've always caused trouble, and they always will. Young Pakistanis say similar things about India. India wants to be a regional and a world power. In that ambition, China exemplifies India's view of her potential role in the world. Chinese technology and military power may get more media attention, but India surpasses China in many ways. In the 1980s, India was the world's 11th largest industrial economy, the sixth largest producer of steel. It had a favorable balance of international credits. It possessed many more miles of railroad tracks and highways than China. 
The Indian armed forces have weaponry that's often more sophisticated than that of the People's Republic. India wants to claim a place as one of the great powers, yet its next-door neighbor Pakistan persistently refuses to acknowledge Indian dominance. In a strategy intended to threaten India, Pakistan maintains close military and diplomatic ties with China. India fears that China may develop even greater influence in South Asia. Indians vividly remember that in 1962, China took advantage of a long-standing border dispute to send its army into the mountainous regions of northern India. Unprepared, even unwilling to believe that another third world country would be so aggressive, India suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Chinese. Even before serious fighting broke out, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru reluctantly addressed the issue of accepting foreign military aid. There is a fact which might be remembered when people think sometimes of obtaining outside aid. They probably imagine that in my conceit I say that I will not take outside military aid. I certainly have little conceit about India standing on its own legs. I cannot, however, say what we may do in any eventuality, but I do not want the idea to get into our people that others will help us and preserve our freedom. I do not want India to go around on crutches. Prime Minister Nehru was personally embarrassed when he was forced to accept military aid from the United States. He often had denounced the U.S. as an imperialist power. Internal tensions within both India and Pakistan have only exaggerated these international tensions. Americans and Europeans think of nations as being founded on cultural unity. In France, citizens speak French and adhere to French culture. Germans also share a language and various customs. But none of those familiar ideas apply to India or Pakistan. India's constitution recognizes 15 languages, including Punjabi, Bengali, Marathi, Hindi, Urdu, Tamil, and Telugu. India's constitution states that Hindi should eventually become the national language, yet English is the only commonly understood language in India. In Pakistan, most people speak regional, mutually unintelligible languages such as Punjabi, Sindhi, or Pashto. Relatively few are literate in Pakistan's official national language, Urdu. As in India, English continues to be the favored language for politicians, businessmen, journalists, and intellectuals. This linguistic and cultural diversity contributes to separatist tendencies. Since 1947, when both countries were founded, many groups have aggressively demanded greater regional autonomy or even complete independence. Inhabitants of Pakistan's northwest frontier province, known as Patans, agitate for their own nation to be called Pakhtunistan. In southwestern Pakistan, the Baluchi people have tried to unite with their cousins in Iran and Afghanistan to create a new country to be called Baluchistan. Over the years, both Baluchis and Patans have sought independence through guerrilla warfare, forcing Pakistan to commit much of its army just to holding the country together. Pakistan blames India, the Soviet Union, 
and, ironically, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency for fomenting and sustaining these internal rebellions. In India, some members of the Sikh religious community want to turn the state of Punjab, where Sikhs are the majority, into a new nation called Khalistan. Others want to reverse their own community's 1947 decision to be counted as Hindus in the Indian state. Many Sikhs want the Punjab joined to Pakistan because they believe Pakistan will grant them greater autonomy. Still other Sikhs want to maintain the status quo. Since 1984, militant Sikhs have assassinated opponents, massacred non-Sikhs, planted bombs on crowded buses, and have fought running gun battles with police. The Indian government accuses Pakistan of arming and training the Sikh militants, but Pakistan denies it. The attitude of rebellious Sikhs has been described by Ainsley Embry, a professor of history at Columbia University. Within the Sikh community, there are elements who see a mammoth plot, one that is deliberately engineered by the ruling Hindu majority. In such a situation, grievances that may be economic or political in origin are perceived as coming from a bias against the Sikhs' religious identity, the very core of their being. A reasonable form of action is to respond to the enemies of one's faith with violence, especially when, as is the case of the so-called Sikh extremists, the government is identified with the Hindu majority. Similar tensions exist in the Indian state of Kashmir, located in the mountains and valleys of the northwest. Kashmir.